Okay, if you would this morning, please turn to the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 9. 1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. And as we do, let me just give a preface of what we have here is the Apostle Peter now is an old man 30 years after that horrific night where he's in the courtyard of the high priest and he denied even knowing his friend Jesus three times. And on that early morning, the rooster crowed. He is 30 years after the brutal death and the resurrection of his Savior. And he's writing to Christians all over the Roman Empire, throughout these provinces, and he's writing to normal Christians like us. That is, Christians who suffer. Christians who have great... Here is addressing on this resurrection Sunday morning for us is this. How can we, as believers in Jesus, endure through grief, through stress, through setbacks, through confusion, through anxiety? Where do we find the strength of joy in the midst of life's stuff. Peter's answer is in the first chapter of 1 Peter, verses 3 to 9. Let us read it. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead unto an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes though it's tested by fire, that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the second coming of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Let's pray. Oh, Father, I pray that you open the eyes 
of our hearts, of we who are in Christ. And if any are not, that you open their eyes initially to see the glory of Christ. May we taste the beauty of this glorious passage this morning. For though, Jesus, we have never seen you, yet we love you. Do it. Amen. So right here, Peter has just told us very clearly what the power source for our endurance is. It's right there in verse 3. According to God the Father's great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's it. Living hope is what carries genuine believers through the pains and the trials of this life so that they obtain the salvation of their souls. And by hope here, Peter does not mean cross your fingers. I sure hope this Christianity thing is true. That's not what he means. Just jump down to verse 13 for a moment where he says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation. It's his way of saying the second coming of Jesus Christ. Future. So when he says hope, in living hope, he, he does not mean we should desire it, but you know, be uncertain of it. I hope so. Hope fully means place the core of your desires with full confidence in Jesus' coming back to bring about your future resurrection and inheritance and to enjoy Him in glory forever. That's what he means. It's what he says. I read again. He has caused us to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here it is. Unto an inheritance. It's future. It's imperishable. Everything down here is perishable. It's undefiled. Everything down here is tainted and defiled. It's unfading. It'll never end. Everything here is coming to an end. It's kept. It's secure. It's reserved in heaven for you. And so he calls this a living hope. Because it's the hope, according to Peter, that the Holy Spirit produces in new birth. In other words, being changed from the inside what the heart is, then it works its way outward. And he describes what this hope looks like in verse 8. Though you have not seen Jesus, like I, Peter, have, you love Him. Though you do not now see Him, you believe in Him and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled 
with glory. And the context is he said, you cry and struggle in grief down here, and yet you rejoice. This is the tension we live in. And the way this hope comes about in our hearts, according to this passage, it's right there again in verse 3. God has caused us. He did this. What? To be born again, which produces the living, ongoing, because it's by the Holy Spirit, it's living, living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So this living hope, this life-changing hope is birthed in us by this new life. And then he says, this new birth comes in some sense through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Okay, let's think about it. Peter's writing 30 years after the cross and the resurrection, down the road, to persons who are 500, 1,000 or more miles away. And some of them, this only happened three months ago, some two years ago when he writes, some 10 years ago. And he tells them, you were born again through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so are we in this room who believe. Here we are 2,000 years later. That's a big gap between our new birth and Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So the question is this. How does that work? What is he saying? What's the connection between the two? My new birth back in 1981, almost 2,000 years after Jesus' resurrection. But I was born again through his resurrection. To answer that question, you just go down to, to verse 23 to 25 of 1 Peter 1, and Peter explains it. You have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, so that we don't lose the connection. Let's go back again. You've been born again through the living and abiding Word of God. And this Word is the good news that was preached to you. So, the connection between the historical resurrection of Jesus around 33 A.D. and our lives 2,000 years later, the connection is, according to that text, the Word of God, which he defines clearly as the Gospel, the preaching of the good news of Jesus' death and resurrection. Like Paul declared in 1 Corinthians 15, now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. For I delivered to you, 
as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Hebrew Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. So there's the word of his resurrection. Get the progression of what Peter has done. First, he says, new birth is a miracle. You don't do it. You can't make it happen. God caused us to be born again. And that produced saving faith. He calls it here living hope. Then Peter says in verse 3, that new birth that God did happened through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. But in verse 23, he says that new birth happened through the living and the abiding word of God. That is the announcement of the good news of Jesus' life, death, and his resurrection. And so what we know then is that the resurrection of Jesus does not produce hope unless someone hears about it through the living and the abiding word of God. And then it may produce living hope. But the reverse is also true. You can hear all kinds of news that will not produce hope because you know it's just not true. You know, Joe, go outside right now. Pause the sermon. Someone wants to hand to you a winning lottery ticket for $40 million. I'll just continue the sermon, please. Thank you. So in other words, words by themselves don't produce hope. There has to be an assurance that those words are true. So, five weeks to six weeks later, when the Apostle Peter and a bunch of Jesus' early disciples go out into the temple and all of a sudden start preaching that the crucified Nazarene has been resurrected from the dead, all his enemies had to do is go to the tomb and drag the dead body of Jesus through the streets and into the temple and say, you going to believe him? There would have been no living hope. So what we see is that genuine, biblical, saving faith inside of us who believe, that is... A subjective experience. It is the experience, a very personal experience of our hearts, of our desires, embracing the message, embracing the person of Jesus. Of his death for my sins and his resurrection. I know it. That's subjective. But that subjective experience is grounded in the objective truth. Truth that is true, factual, whether you have ever heard about it 
or whether you deny it or whether you believe it, not relevant to objectivity. In other words, if the man, Jesus from Nazareth, who was brutally killed on a Roman cross and entombed in that cave, if he was not, by God's power, miraculously transformed from mortality as a human being to immortality, that very body changed and alive, then Christianity is a farce. No matter what you believe, it's a waste. And there is no true hope. In other words, no hope that is actually connected to what will happen in the future. The scripture is clear on this as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15. If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is vain. And then he goes on to say again. And if Christ has not been raised, then your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. And so what I want to do with most the rest of our time then is to lay out a few strong, historical, objective reasons to believe in the literal, bodily, historical resurrection of Jesus. Because it's important. First is this. Throughout Jesus' ministry for a few years, he proclaimed, and this is just historically verifiable by all those who were around him, that he was going to go to Jerusalem and die. And on the third day, he would rise from the dead. The ear witnesses to this are strong. Now, that doesn't make his resurrection true. That doesn't prove that he was raised from the dead. That's not the point at this point. But one thing is for sure. Throughout history since Jesus is coming, it is amazing how everyone wants to have a piece of him. Everyone does. New Age, Buddhism, Islam, has them in the Quran, inaccurately. But everyone wants a piece. You don't want to be against Jesus because he's a great religious leader and teacher. Those are people who do not know the historical accounts. Or they're dumb. This man said horrifically audacious things, if not true. Like, I am equal with God. Like, before Abraham was born, I am. Like, I will be killed in Jerusalem. And on the third day, I will rise from the dead. If Jesus did not bodily rise from the dead, then at best he is a nutcase. And at worst, he's a liar. He is a deceiver. And the deception that he has put upon the world is vicious. That's the first. So you just hold that there. These all go together. Secondly is this. The tomb was empty. His enemies never could produce the body in order to end this Jesus sect movement in Jerusalem that they so hated. They couldn't do it. Third, 
something must account for the dramatic change in his apostles, the women, many other disciples. Peter, while Jesus is still alive, because he's so fearful of what would happen to him, denied knowing Jesus who was arrested now. And after he was killed, they were in hiding. They didn't know what to do. They were utterly dejected and depressed and they did not have any hope. Okay, let's just take a step back. Forget about all the stuff, with what was going on with them. If you're just looking back historically over Jerusalem, that was that. Was that. And then all of a sudden, about six weeks later, they show up in the temple filled with hope, filled with joy, a joy that gave them courage to preach Jesus has been raised from the dead. Even if it cost me my life, I will die for that testimony. This is who they were. What changed them? Well, their explanation of it is that we met him after he was dead. Their explanation was Jesus has risen from the dead. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 20 for a moment. And I want to set the backdrop. Joseph of Arimathea who was a council member on the Sanhedrin that condemned Jesus to death, though Joseph did not cast his vote against Jesus. He's rich. He goes to the Roman government to ask permission, because it was a governmental execution, ask permission to take charge of the body and its burial. They give it to him. He's got numbers of servants. There's at least 15, 20 Pounds of spices are going to be used here as his servants clean the body, and this is what they do. Now they start to put the spices to help kill the stench of death as it's going to grow. And then as they put spices on the body, then they start to wrap it with strips of cloth around the spices, around the torso. Now put more spices over that cloth and continue to wrap. Put some more spices, continue to wrap. And they go down to the rest of the body and the legs. And they wrap, spice, wrap, spice. And then they start to wrap his head like a turban with that spice too. And And what is exposed at that point is his face. So you can view in his neck and the top of his shoulders. They take the dead body into the tomb, and they lay it on the slab, face up. There he is. Here's the question. If you were a fly on the wall of that tomb, and somehow you could see, had light, on that first Easter Sunday morning, when he rose from the dead, what you have seen. Would you have seen the dead body of Jesus all of a sudden start to squirm 
and wiggle and try to get out of these mummified tines of wrappings for a while until he finally does? No. What you would have seen is the dead body one moment, and then the next moment, gone. Except you would have seen a strange thing that the cloth around his head wasn't just lying where it would be lying, but it was folded neatly and set over there. That's what you would have seen. Let's start reading in verse 5 of John 20. This is the Apostle John talking. And stooping to look in, he, he's referring to himself in the third person, he, meaning myself, John, he saw the linen cloths lying there. But he, that is I, John, did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth which had been on Jesus' head not lying with the linen cloths but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, referring to himself, the other disciple who had reached the tomb first also went in and he saw and believed. For as yet he did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. John is not stupid. He's a normal person that if you're going to look for a dead body in a tomb and the body's not there, you don't assume he's risen. But he believed. Because what he saw was this. He knew nobody moved the body. He knew nobody messed around with the linen cloths wrapped around Jesus' dead body. But he knew the body that was inside the cloth was no more. But the cloth just remains the same other than probably fell, <sighs> collapsed a little bit. He knew this had to be a miracle for the body to escape the cloth. He is risen. That's what he thought. Now, you add to that. That's not the only testimony of these guys and the women and many others. Their testimony is after that, it wasn't just that we saw the body gone. Jesus appeared to us again and again and again and again in real, physical, non-ghostly, non-spiritual, non-vision-like appearances. For instance, Luke 24, 38 to 43. And Jesus said to them, Why are you troubled? Standing before them. Raised from the dead. And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Well, this is kind of unusual, Jesus. That's why. 
See my hands and my feet? See the holes from the cross? It is I myself. Go ahead, touch me and see. For spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he said, said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, Jesus said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish. And Jesus took it. And he ate it before them. And then Luke in Acts 1 just concisely declared, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many, many proofs appearing to them time and time and time again during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So these eyewitnesses to his resurrection are not gullible. This wasn't some wish fulfillment illusion or a bad acid trip. Uh-uh. This was happening for five weeks, almost six. Hanging out with him in Jerusalem, the Mount of Olives, and even up again in Galilee, Jesus appears again and again and teaches them and teaches them. And let me have some more of that fish. And he eats it. And let me touch you again. And they do. That's what they're testifying to. Paul summarizes this testimony of Scripture this way in 1 Corinthians 15. He was buried in that tomb and dead. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And then he appeared to Cephas, it's Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, probably up in Galilee. Most of whom, when he writes this in the late 50s, are still alive. Though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, that's Jesus' brother. And then to all the apostles. And last of all is to one untimely born. He appeared also to me. And then fifth. You have to add to that the historical fact that most of these close disciples and particularly the apostles of Jesus died for their claim that God raised Jesus of Nazareth from the dead. They know whether they have fabricated that testimony. They know if they're lying about it. 
or not. You have to account for they went to their death. Brutal deaths. Holding to that testimony. Oh, Jesus is risen. And so as I close over the next eight minutes, kind of always had that eight minutes, I realize I said the word close. Let's get back to where we started. How do these credible evidences historically, when you take them all together, for Jesus' resurrection, how do they produce saving faith, living hope, joy, in us, a joy inexpressible and filled with glory. The answer is twofold. It's two parts to this. The first is what we have just seen the historical, objective reality, factually, of the resurrected Lord Jesus. The reason that is so crucial to our living hope is that He was risen. You know what that means? That means we have solid reason to trust that everything He said about who He was and what His death on the cross accomplished and His resurrection is absolutely true because He was raised from the dead. It gives us absolute assurance that what the Hebrew Scriptures foretold and predicted about Him, the Son of David, the Messiah, is true. It gives us assurance that His suffering and His death as a true human being actually did bear the wrath of God against our sin He's raised. It's true. It is absolutely true because He's raised from the dead that the gospel of justification, that you, though a sinner, because you have living hope, because you have been born again, because you love Him, you are right now, as a sinner, justified before God forever because God took the human righteousness of that man, Christ Jesus, and put it to your account. How do you know it's true? Because He is risen indeed. He was, as Paul declared, raised for our justification. And that as the God-man Jesus was resurrected from mortal life to immortality in humanity forever. And thus the promise that all who belong to Him, He will one day raise in like manner is absolutely true. Because 2,000 years ago, God raised Jesus from the dead. And that's why the Apostle Peter tells us who believe, Place your hope in your spouse. No. In 10,000 other things. Place your hope 
fully on the grace that is to be brought to you in Jesus' second coming. The resurrection of Jesus from the dead certifies all of that. And that is living hope and joy producing. Boom. Then there's the second aspect to it. And that's this. The objective, historical facts of the resurrection of Jesus, it produces in us living hope by the personal act of God upon our hearts called new birth as we hear the living and abiding word of God, the gospel. That's verse 3. He has caused us to be born again unto a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. God produces this living hope by his sovereign hand shining, as Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, shining the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, in the gospel preaching. And he says he shines that light upon our hearts, not merely intellect, but our hearts. And we see and we believe. And we're alive with a living hope. And so, the gospel means, we all know, good news. It is the news, the great news of the announcement that God has sent His eternal, uncreated Son to become a human being in order to justly Receive in His person the punishment for our sins. The one who was sinless. And that God raised Him from the dead on the third day as proof of Jesus' sinlessness and the affirmation of His substitutionary atonement. And then the offer goes out to every soul, to every sinner. If you believe, you will have eternal life freely. The offer is all of your sins, past, present, and future, will be totally wiped away because they have been justly dealt with in Jesus Christ. And He promises you an eternity of conscious joy in the joy of God Himself as He will one day raise you from the dead. One way to get it. Receive it. It's called faith. You can't work for it. You can't do anything. But say, yes. So what have you in this room done with this message, with this offer of utterly free?
free gift of eternal life. Have you seen Jesus for who he actually is? And for what he has accomplished and then embraced him? If not, repent. Turn away from your idolatry and embrace him. And if you have then, dear saint, then thank him. Thank your heavenly Father that the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ not only removed all of your sins as far as the east is from the west, not only provided you justification and that there is therefore now no condemnation for you who believe, but his death and his resurrection also purchased your new birth. He grabbed you and shined the light of this historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus and you knew it was true because he came so intimately close to you. And you say, I want you, I choose you. And he says, I know, that's right, but I first chose you. And then your heart should grow all the more secure in such love is that. The reason, Peter says, we have been born again unto a living hope is because God did the miracle in our desires by opening the eyes of our hearts through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that is why for us, verse 8 is true. Though you have not encountered the resurrected Jesus like many others have. You love him. Though you do not now see him, you rejoice with a joy that's otherworldly. It's inexpressible. It's filled with glory. Obtaining is the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your soul. We have been born again unto a living hope which trusts now in our lives. We trust in Christ alone. And this is our song this morning that we're going to end with. Because this song is the heartbeat of living hope. Hear the words. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fierce drought and storm. What heights of love, what depths of peace, when fears are stilled, when striving cease. My comforter, my all in all, here in the love of Christ I stand. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God and helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness scorned by the ones He came to save. Till on that cross that Jesus died, 
the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on Him was laid here. Here in the death of Christ I live. There in the ground His body lay. Light of the world by the darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave, he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I stand. Let us stand and sing out this living hope. In Christ alone, my hope is found. He is my light, my strength, my song. This cornerstone, this solid ground firm through the fiercest drought and storm what heights of love what depths of peace when tears are still when striving cease my comforter my all in all here in the love of christ i Christ alone, who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless faith, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones he came to save, till on that cross has Jesus died, the wrath of God for every sin on him was laid here in the death of Christ I live there in the ground his body lay Light of the world by darkness slain, then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again, and as he stands in victory, since curse has lost his grip on me, for I am his. He is mine, bought with the 
precious blood of to lie, no fear in death, this is the power of Christ in me, from life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commenced my destiny, no power of hell, no scheme of man can ever cut me from his hand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Till he returns or calls me home, here in the power of Christ I'll I want to close by having us gather together with brothers and sisters from the 1600s as I pray one of their prayers. Make it yours. O Lord, I marvel that thou shouldest become incarnate, be crucified, dead, and buried. The tomb calls forth my adoring wonder, for it is empty, and you have risen. The fourfold gospel attests it, the living witnesses prove it, my heart's experience knows it. Give me to die with you that I might rise to new life. For I wish to be as dead and buried to sin, to selfishness, to the world. That I might not hear the voice of the charmer and might be delivered from his lusts. O Lord, there is much ill about me. Crucify it. Much flesh within me. Mortify it. Purge me from selfishness. The fear of man, the love of praise, the shame of being thought old-fashioned. Amazing they thought that in the 1600s. <laughs> Let me reckon my old life dead because of crucifixion and never feed it as a living thing. Grant me to stand with my dying Savior to be content to be rejected to be willing to take up unpopular truths and to hold fast despised teachings until death. Help me to be resolute in Christ contained. Never let me wander from the path of obedience to your will. Strengthen me for the battles ahead. Give me courage for all the trials and grace for all the joys. Help me to be a holy happy person, free from every wrong desire, from everything contrary to your mind. Grant me more and more of the resurrection life. May it rule me. May I walk in its power and be strengthened through its 
influence. Amen. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. He is risen. He is risen indeed. May the Lord of glory, who died for our sins and was raised on the third day and ascended to the right hand of God and sent the Holy Spirit, go with you in the person, in the presence, in the power of the Holy Spirit and the word of truth, the Bibles you own, to the glory of his holy name. Amen and amen. We are dismissed. No power of hell no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. No power of hell. No power of hell. No scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand. No power of hell. No power of hell. No scheme of man. Can never pluck me from his hand Till he returns or calls me home Here in the power of Christ I'll stand Till he returns or calls me home Here in the power of Christ I'll stand